I don't know if there can be anything more encouraging than worshiping a God who never stops working. He never stops conforming us, those who know him, into the image of his beloved son, never. And he never stops working to bring this world to his end where he returns. The Lord Jesus is sitting on the edge of his seat at the right hand of the Father, looking at the Father saying, now, is it time now that I go get my people? That's the ultimate end that he is working for. So I hope you're encouraged this morning. And in light of encouragement, as Monty said, we're going to start teaching through the entire book of Hebrews, year, two years, three years, probably shorter than Luke, but we're going to teach through Hebrews. In light of that, we've given each of you uh, one of these journals. Now, these journals are multi-purpose journals, meaning you can use them to take notes in Hebrews. You can write down your prayer requests. You can uh, use them in some kind of other study, stick in your Bible. But I would ask you, in terms of the journal and the picture on front, to remind you to connect upward with God, because that's our emphasis this year. And at the end of the year, we hope this journal was full of of new and fresh ways that you are different because you have drawn near to Christ. So great uh, little tool there. If you want more stickers, some of you are sort of, as the Hebrew says, we'll talk about this morning, dull of hearing. So you need more reminding. I know who you are. I won't call you out by name. You can get multiple stickers at the starting point desk. Stick on your windshield. Your, well, don't stick them on your windshield. You might not can see, but you get the picture on your mirror in the bathroom or or somewhere else. So good morning to you. All right, let's do it. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning as we look at an introduction of the book of Hebrews. Henry David Thoreau, in the early to mid-1800s, he was a, you've heard his name probably, was a poet and a philosopher said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is simply confirmed desperation. It is an unconscious despair, catch the word unconscious, that is concealed under the games and amusements of mankind. It was true in the 1800s, it's true today, and it's always been true of us humans. Much of the resignation or desperation he called it or survival mode or just making it through life day after day after day with a, with a lack of passion and a lack of purpose and a lack of meaning beyond just your day. The truth of it is it's not because of personal failure, but it's because of the things that we or they or you or I would thought would fulfill us and they've not done so. It's as if we're putting together this giant, uh, uh, what kind of puzzle I'm talking about? Jigsaw puzzle, thank you. Giant jigsaw puzzle of the life we hope for only to find there are many pieces missing in the puzzle. We've hoped to have made something of our existence in the here and now by only looking and seeking for it in the here and now. How dumb of us humans but how natural that is for us. The list is certainly endless of those who, folks who have achieved at the highest levels and yet are people of quite 
desperation. I got that. I've mentioned that several times. I got that in a personal way at 27 to 33 as I worked with pro athletes. Man, I could even put the word miserable in there, even though they had it all. Go to Google. I did this this week. Just Google the lives of famous and miserable people. You will be given countless hours to read about the tragicness. Is that a word? In the Greek it is. <laughs> it's tragic. Every one of their lives in some ways mimic the famous Beatles singer Paul Simon in his bio where he lays out a contradiction of his life. He says, I'm young, I'm famous, I'm rich, I'm talented, and my life is blah. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and theologian, states both the problem and the solution in 30 words. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Folks, that's a one-sentence summary of the whole Bible. So, that's good, Jeff, but what in the world does Thoreau and Paul Simon and Pascal and Desperation have to do with the book of Hebrews? Well, I think it has a lot to do because the book of Hebrews describes as clearly as any book in the entire Bible who Jesus Christ is. And if you are prepared to believe what Hebrews says about Christ, a, quiet, a life of quiet desperation does not have to be your end game. And I'm not talking about walking around Pollyanna here. Skies really is falling and we're acting as if it's not. No, I am talking about a meaning and purpose and passion for life beyond in the here and now. The New Testament scholar Philip <clears throat> Hughes put it this way, it's in your notes. If there's a widespread unfamiliarity with the book of Hebrews and its teaching, it is because so many Christians have settled for superficial association with the Christian faith. Therefore, I would say they have lives of quite desperation. He continues, yet Hebrews was written to arouse such persons from the lethargic state of compromise and complacency into which they had sunk. Hebrews is a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. We neglect such a book to our own spiritual impoverishment. Hebrews not only challenges us to see clearly who Jesus Christ is, but it tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is superior to everything and everybody. Hebrews answers, again with great clarity, the most important question that people face. How can a person approach God? And when that question is answered, the writer of Hebrews then asks another question. Will you approach God on his terms and on his ways. Will you draw near to the one who is superior over everything and everybody? 
and literally drink deeply from the one who gives spiritual, genuine life to all who draw near. He is the only one that can do so. The writer of Hebrews will bring that out. So as an introduction, let's ask some questions about the books, the book of Hebrews, because we've said a thousand times, we'll say a thousand times more. If you want to know what the Bible says, you must do it in context, right? Context is king. If not, you can make it say whatever you want for whatever situation you want, and that's not a good thing. Write that in your notes. Not a good thing. (laughs) So let's ask the question, who wrote it? Let me read for us our introductory text, and then we'll go from there. Verses 1, verse 1 through 3a. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? I read that because I want you to notice that this does not have the normal salutation of other epistles in the New Testament where they state the church they're writing to or the name of the author. The one possibility that I think is legit is that Hebrews was written as a sermon uh, to be read aloud to a congregation. But I can promise you, I have read more about who wrote the book of Hebrews than you'll ever want to read in your life over the last week and a half. And there are lots of opinions. So let's go through some of that. Clement of Alexandria, who was a Christian theologian and philosopher, said it was written by Paul in Hebrew, but translated in Greek by Luke, Dr. Luke, who we just got through studying through, or the book of Luke. Origen, a student of Clement, a whole generation later, states that the Greek of Hebrews had no signs of being translated from Hebrew and that it lacks Paul's rudeness of expression. (laughs) Which I agree. Origen does acknowledge that the thoughts of Hebrews are the Apostle Paul's, but the style and composition are the work who called some the work of someone who calls Paul's thoughts and put them to pen. And then another third option for us is old Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the great encourager and companion of Paul on his missionary journey to the Gentiles. He was named author by Tertullian. Is that how you say that? Thank you very much. Close enough. Tertullian, you may know, was an early Christian author and apologist from Africa. He said this because Barnabas was a Levite Jew. We'll see all kind of Jewish stuff here going on. And he was known as the son of encouragement. Let me give you a clue to maybe why Barnabas wrote it. Hebrews 13, I'll just read this to you, 22 and 23. It says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is the author saying that. Bear with me my word of encouragement or exhortation. For have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So, here's the author who wrote 
to encourage. We know that's who Barnabas was. And Barnabas also, if you remember, knew Timothy. So that's a possibility. If you put a gun to my head, that's where I'm going. It's not where I'm landing today, but if I had to say someone. Calvin thought Luke wrote it, not Paul. Luther thought it was Apollos. Apollos was a first century Jewish Christian. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament. He's a teammate of Paul, and he played a crucial role in the churches at Ephesus and Corinth. And then lastly, uh, some say that Priscilla and Aquila wrote it together. Do you remember them? First century married couple of missionaries, missionary couple who lived with and worked with and traveled with Paul. They were known for their gift of teaching. Look up Acts 18. They instructed Apollos. They're the ones that passed the faith down to Apollos. And they were also close to Timothy. So there are the legitimate options out there. So where do I land? I agree with Origen when he said, after laying all this out, but as to who actually wrote the epistle, God knows the truth of the matter. That's where I land. <laughs> Maybe our first question when we get to heaven is, God, who wrote Hebrews? So, in light of that, do we knew, know anything about the author of Hebrews? Well, we do know that he was a second-generation Christian. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, It was declared at first by the Lord, it being the gospel, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So this is a second-generation Christian. It's not one of the apostles. This person had to have a great vocabulary. It's written in the highest level of Greek that you can write in. It's probably the difference between my writing and some incredible scholars writing. You can tell a difference. Had a great vocabulary, a master of rhetorical style. One scholar said he had to be a learned man, mighty in the scriptures. In addition, there is hard evidence that the apostle Paul did not write it. If you remember in Galatians chapter 1, Paul laid out, and in other places, Paul laid out his calling card of credibility as an apostle. And what did he say? I did not receive the gospel from men, but I received it directly from God. And so here we see this author saying, no, I received it from someone else. So who wrote it? God knows. When was it written? Well, I just said we can confirm that the author and the audience are second-generation Christ followers who received the gospel initially from apostles and then to someone else. But Hebrews 13, 23 gives us a clue. It says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Well, released from where? Where do you think? Prison. So the bottom line is, we know that Timothy's imprisonment must have been after the death of Paul because nowhere in Paul's writings does he, or in the New Testament does it say anything about Timothy being in prison. And then in Hebrews 12, 4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews is these Christians were under great persecution but up until this point, no one had died. And so it had to be before A.D. 65 when Nero began killing Christians in Rome. 
uh, where Christians did die. One other clue is that throughout the book of the, throughout the book, the author writes as if the Jewish rituals and sacrifices in the temple were going on in the present tense. They were happening there. Uh, you can write down Hebrews 9, 6 through 9. And so this present tense description of these Jewish sacrifices in a way would tell us it was before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And so in light of that, most people say it was written anywhere between AD 65 and AD 69, 30 plus years after the resurrection of Christ. Next question we need to understand is, who was it written to? Well, the actual title of the book is To the Hebrews. So we see just in the title of the book, uh, this, this Jewishness of its readers. And only those, if we really think about it, only those who were convinced of the greatness of Judaism would need someone to come in and declare to them the superiority of Christianity over Judaism, that you can't mix and match those. There is an emphasis we'll see throughout the book on the Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices, but there's really no mention of G Gentiles. So we have a, a Jewish audience and in this congregation, I want to mention this because there's some difficult passages in Hebrews, particularly about eternal security. And in that, we got to remember who this audience is. And I, I as, long, as well as others I read this week, think there are three different audiences. The first one is there are Jewish believers who had converted to Christ. No doubt we have Jewish believers Secondly, we have non-Christians who were intellectually convinced of the gospel, but they had not trusted Christ, although they were Jews. Now, you may say, who, who is that? Well, look, these three categories are in every church in America. There are believers who have come to Christ. In our context here, there are Jews who were intellectually convinced but had not placed their trust in Christ. And then thirdly, this congregation was made up of non-Christians, Jews who were attracted by the gospel and the person of Christ. They were coming to worship, if you would, interested. They were seeking. So that's going to help us interpret some different difficult passages. We also know this. The writer declares strongly in Hebrews 5.12 that they had time to mature, that since the point the majority of them had come to Christ, they should have been mature. Look what he says in 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Folks, that in itself, if I quit the sermon this morning, ought to wake us all up, ask the question, have I had time? Part of growth is grace and truth and what? Time. Have I had time to mature? If the answer is yes, author Hebrews would say, wake up. So this is who the author is <clears throat> writing to. Then it says, why was it written? That's another great question. Well, this congregation was not only needing milk in terms of solid food, but Hebrews 5.11 says they were dull of hearing. 
It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you ever tell your kid that? Man, you can't hear. Or we say, you're not listening. <clears throat> Even though they had been taught the gospel, they could not or would not let go of their Jewish Levitical sacrificial system. As I said, they were mixing on equal and unequal terms Jesus and Judaism. And so throughout this book, a question to ask ourselves is, what are we mixing in on equal and unequal terms with the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything? We're just as guilty. It just looks different. The writer wants to once and for all establish the finality of Christianity by establishing once and for all the supremacy of Christ in his person and his work. This congregation needed to know that Christ is greater than all the previous spokesmen of God who had gone before. That Christ is greater than Moses. And look, Moses was their number one huckleberry. That Christ is greater even, as Monty's going to talk about next week, angels. They thought way too much of angels. And he says the reason is so they would not neglect so great of a salvation. Under the persecution that these believers were enduring, they were certainly confused. D.A. Carson summarizes sort of this audience that the writer of Hebrews wrote to when he says, Christ, his sacrifice, and his priestly work are so dumbed down in the church, in this congregation, that they are effectively denied, and apostasy, which is abandonment from the faith, is only a whisker away. It is to prevent just such a calamity that the author writes this epistle. And then lastly, in terms of our introduction and context of this book, we ask a great question of every book. What is the theme of the book of Hebrews? I love how R.C. Sproul summarized it. He said, no other book in the New Testament integrates the gospel with the Old Testament better than the book of Hebrews. The author of this epistle is relentless in his effort to reveal Christ as greater than the prophets, the angels, Moses, and the Levitical priests. In fact, the author argues all the ceremonies, sacrifices, and offices of the Old Testament foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. In light of so great a salvation, Hebrew encourages us to run the race before us in faithfulness and perseverance instead of living a life of quite desperation. So I don't know about you, that got me jazzed to study the book of Hebrews. You with me? Okay. All right. So let me read again our verses just for context. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In verses 1, in the beginning of verse 2, God has spoken, the writer tells us, through his son. As I've mentioned before, it's understandable that Christians who come from a Jewish background struggle with moving away from the richness of the Judaism that they worshiped in. They would naturally compare their newfound faith with the richness of this Jewish heritage. So the writer of Hebrews, notice this, from the very first words that he wrote declares Jesus Christ is better. He doesn't delay. He doesn't beat around the bush. Verse 1, we are told that God has spoken. How? Long ago and many times and in many ways. And although the writer does not list the ways, we know because they were Jewish and very familiar with the Old Testament, it would only take an elementary knowledge of the Old Testament to understand exactly what he was talking about. God spoke in the Old Testament in visions, angelic revelations, prophetic words from the Old Testament prophets, and in events. The history of the Old Testament was full and is full of God, a God who speaks. The most common and profound way that God spoke, we know, was through his prophets. Their words carried great authority because they could actually say, God says. These men who spoke on behalf of God tell us so much about God, and we're so thankful for their words. But in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, the writer indicates to us that their communication was incomplete. The writer tells us what God spoke in the past simply prepared the way for God's complete and final communication, which was the revelation of his beloved son. As God now speaks to us by his son, this communication is final and ultimate. That is, it is superior or better than all the speaking that has been done in the past. God has now spoken to men by a son. And in light of that, the finest of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you name them. It is in stark contrast of their words and the word of a son. How gracious is God to be a God of self-disclosure? He could have just stayed in his little private self. <laughs> he could have shut his mouth. He could have stayed isolated. But he forfeits all of that and gives up his own privacy, and he speaks so that we may know and with great certainty, God wants to speak to you and to me through the word of his son. God's divine revelation from the past in the Old Testament to the present is not less true to more true or less worthy to more worthy. It is from promise to fulfillment. 
Yes, God's revelation has been progressive, but be assured there is no more progression. (laughs) It is final and ultimate in Jesus Christ because all promises are fulfilled in him. Secondly, the writer in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, tells us that God created the universe through his son. The writer of Hebrews now wants us to know about the son's relationship to the world. What is that like? Who is this son that God has spoken through? And it tells us that God has appointed his son the heir of all things, and we know that ain't new. He's always been the the son that was the heir of all things. And then he tells us next that the son inherits what he himself made. What did he make? The entire world. The world is the son's creation. So much so, he's so deeply a part of it that he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. (laughs) He knows when one of us loses a hair from our head. He knows when we're made in intimacy, in secret. He's not like us, folks. He's not like anybody. In some ways, this statement that God created the entire world through his son is staggering. Think about this. The same person who had lived among men was the exact one who created men. Then lastly, in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews tells us God and his son share the exact nature and likeness. The author, again, of Hebrews does not back off. He just keeps going forward. Christ is better. Let me tell you how. Christ is better. Let me tell you how. Christ is better. Let me tell you how. And in verse 3, he gives us the description of this son. He tells us three things. The sun reflects the glory of God himself. The word picture here is just as the radiance of the sun breaks upon the earth and shines light on it, so in Christ the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women through this sun. There's our word picture. Secondly, he tells us the sun bears the very stamp of his nature. John or Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And thirdly, he tells us the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I, I want to tell you what that's not first. That's not this picture of Atlas. Remember the Greek God, I think it was Atlas, with this world on his back? Uh, No, this word uphold means Jesus is at the very center of the continuing stability of the entire universe. And if he were wanted to fall apart, he pulls the thread, whichever he wants, and it would unravel. There is no room, in light of what the writer of Hebrew tells us, of his son upholding the universe, for us to picture this God like a watchmaker who makes a watch, winds it up, walks away from it. No, 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 no. He is involved 
in everything. He is awake and attentive to every single molecule, every single activity, every single word that is spoken. He is deeply and intimately involved. I love it. It says, does so by the word of his power. Remember in Luke, when the thousand uh, legion of Roman guards and others were there and Jesus spoke and they all fell down? That's his word. Remember in Genesis 1, we said, let there be light and there was light. That same word that created, the writer here is saying, is the same word that sustains the entire universe. He ain't like us. So what's our so what this morning? I think Hebrews 4.16 tells us our so what. It's in your notes. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In light of, think about this, just the first three verses of our text, we can with great confidence, because look, I don't want to draw near if it ain't going to help. You with me? I ain't got time for all that. But the writer of Hebrews says, just in light of the first three verses of Hebrews, we can draw near to the one who God has spoken through, to the one who created and sustains the universe, and to the one who is the exact image of God himself. That's his invitation to us as believers. If you know Christ, it is the son who waits patiently for you to meet him, to learn from him, to eat and drink life from him. Do you remember the Holy Spirit at the transfiguration, said to Peter, John, and James, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, this is who my son is. Listen to him. Draw near to him. I'll tell you, if you're like me, and I think most of you are, meaning we're just human. You can't listen to him. It's hard to listen to him if you don't sit in the chair. Here's what I want to tell you about the chair. You know that chair on the screen? See it right here? That's a picture. That chair is always empty, and he's always waiting for you to sit in the chair. He's never too busy for you. He's never put off by you. He's never disgusted with you. The writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is better than anything and anybody. What is, what is the thing that keeps you from sitting in the chair. The writer of Hebrews would say to you, he's better than any activity. He's better than any TV show. Could you cut that music off, please? Thank you. He's better than any person. 
He's better than any ball game. He's better than any nap. He's better than any food. He's better than any girlfriend, a boyfriend, a wife, or a husband, or Twitter feed, or news article. He's better than anything. All those things that get in the way of you and I sitting in the chair, the writer of Hebrews says he's better than. And here's what I know from experience. You can't trust one that you don't know intimately. You can't trust one that you only know about through the life of another. No, no, you got to sit in the chair. Lastly, I want you to notice how the writer of Hebrews describes where the chair is. Metaphorically speaking, the chair sits before the son who sits on the throne of grace. And he's always prepared to give to the person who sits in the chair mercy and grace to help in their time of need. And I don't know one person who is breathing on this earth that doesn't need mercy and grace, that don't need help. You know anybody? Anybody want to raise your hand on that one? No, I'm good. Monty, come on up here. This is a special third Sunday where we want to pray for you. And we want to pray this. This is the application of our so what. We want to ask this question. What is it that prevents you from drawing near to God? And we want you to text those answers to us. And we want to pray for you. Man, it, it, it could be... A thousand things. But what is it, the thing or things that prevent you? Because the truth be known, if the truth were known, I think we would be sad beyond description about how many of God's people regularly sit in the chair to draw near to him. You can play the music if you would. The number to text is 615-205-4367. So whether you're at home or whether you're here, think about what is it? What is that thing that's getting in the way? Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's all kind of stuff, right? But we want to pray for you because this year at Fellowship Bible Church, I mean, a year from now, it'd be radical for a church where the vast majority of its people are drawing near to God in ways like they never have by sitting in the chair. Take a minute to think. Yeah, Jeff, can I also mention, as we're praying, this is an opportunity for corporate prayers. So we want you to pray with us as you hear us praying about something. Just know that somebody either here or online texted that need in so you can pray for them with us uh, silently, but that's how we want to approach this. So let's go ahead and begin praying. I love this first uh, request. Someone is just praying for total surrender. Lord, would you, would you bring all of us, but this, this first person who texted in, Father, 
they want to be at a place of, of total surrender. I know for me, Father, that uh, there's many times when I want to want to. <laughs> and so, Lord, I pray that you would give this person the want to, that they would be ready to come to you with empty hands, completely surrendering to your will and your ways. Thank you, Father. Lord, as uh, one here is asking for prayers that, that they would give up their selfishness and go to God in humility, we can certainly resonate with that, Lord. Um, we want the things that we want, and we pray that we would bring all of those things, leave them at your feet, or that you might supply our every need, and we might value you above all things. Lord Jesus, I can so empathize with this prayer request. They're saying that self-reliance and doubt and trying to find time to draw closer and making God the right priority. Lord Jesus, we are so bent to that. Lord, I pray for this person that you would take them step by step, maybe for the first time. And they would, they would sit in the chair and open the scriptures and your spirit through your word of your son would speak to them in profound and ways that would be life-changing and they would want more of you, not less. Father, I pray for this person's busyness. So many things that pull all of us in so many directions. It feels like life is happening to us and overwhelming us. Lord, for this person, I pray that they would be able by your strength to pause to rest, to wait, to seek you. And uh, Lord, would you move into that place and, and uh, Lord, would you handle a lot of those distractions and those things that are pulling at this person so that they might uh, really hear from you in an undistracted way. There's a prayer here that says, my doubts and the lies of the enemy. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Lord, we can all resonate with that. The enemy loves to deceive, and um, it's in his nature. Lord, we all are um, capable of hearing these things and choosing to believe them at times. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our unbelief, that we might choose to believe truth over the lies of the enemy, and that we might invest in time with you. Lord, I love the transparency of this prayer request. The person says it's the shame of their past, current sin of drugs and pornography, but most of all, pride. Lord, it's so backwards. We have this false view of you because we don't know what you say about you. Lord, I pray this person would sit and read and hear this gospel, this gospel that is good news for sinners. This God who stands at the end of the road, as in Luke 15, as God the Father stands there waiting for his wayward son to come home and hugs him and kills the fatted calf, that that view of God would make us run to God. He already knows what we do and what we've done 
and the sweetness and satisfaction of that kind of love and acceptance that we do not deserve would make us run on quicker, but also turn away from things that hinder us sitting in the chair. Lord, I pray for this one who just simply wants to trust you. As Jeff said earlier, um, so hard to trust someone we don't know. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself in fresh and new ways to this person. Lord, I pray that they would see you in all of your beauty, all of your majesty, all of your glory, all of your power. I pray that they would see that in fresh and new ways and I pray that that would be what gives them a heart to trust in you not in their own understanding not in their own ways not in their own ideas or opinions Lord would they learn to trust in you for everything there is one here that says the fear of the work that will be required and what will need to change in my life in order to draw near to God. Perhaps not a more transparent way to express it. And uh, Lord, I I pray for this person. I pray, Lord, that they would uh, take hold of the fact that your love for them is great. Your word is full of reminders of how much you care for us. Your word is, is full of reminders that grace abounds. I pray, Lord, that we might let that sink deep into our heart that we might be reminded Lord that life with you is better than any other form of life and uh, Lord that the truth of that might permeate each of our hearts in a way that lets us set aside anything that hinders us Lord, that we might uh, grow and mature in you and learn from you and your word again Lord the beautiful transparency of your people that there is fear or hesitancy that I failed as a father Lord I can see how that would prevent any of us from sitting in the chair that's exactly why we need to sit in the chair we need help we need the mercy and grace that comes from the throne of God through the son Lord, we've all failed as parents. We are sinners raising sinners. But until we're dead, Lord, there's, there's, uh, there's healing, there's redemption, there's reconciliation between parents and children. And the only way we can get there, the only way we can admit that, yes, I failed, but I want to make it right is because the gospel says beautiful things about us in Christ. I pray for this Father, that, Lord, he would again sit in the chair and experience you in such a way that your spirit through your word prompts him to go to his children and say, can we talk? Help heal that critical relationship. Father, I pray for a person with a lack of discipline, and as I hear that, I think we can all relate. And Lord, I know in my own life, um, 
I do those things that I feel like I really need to do. So Lord, I ask that you would show this person and all of us the depth of our need. Lord, I I pray in a healthy way that we would be so overcome by our need that we would cry out to you, that we would see that there is no other place to go, no, no thing on this earth that can meet our need like you can. And Lord, out of that, I pray that that would be a great motivation to, uh, to stop, to sit, and to uh, set our hearts on you. There is a prayer here for distractions to grow dim. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, it seems like life moves 100 miles an hour all the time. And we confess, Lord, that we can be distracted. We can lose sight of that which is most important in our lives and um, invest in these things that are sort of less important, maybe is the right way to say that, but certainly of less significance. Lord, we know that there are actions that we have to take in life and we need your wisdom to make wise choices and to engage in those things well. Hmm. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who takes that to heart and we would know that the time we invest with you and your word allowing you to transform us that it will radically alter the rest of life we might see the rest of life correctly and um, through the eyes of the gospel and um, with heart with a heart that wants to demonstrate your grace to others in all circumstances Lord Jesus, as we wrap up this morning, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. And your final and ultimate revelation is in your son. That you have not been quiet. That you speak to us. And now you speak to us through your word. The spirit takes and uses as a two-edged sword to transform us from the inside out. Lord, I pray as we battle distractions and shame and fear and control and false beliefs about you, I pray that regardless of how we feel and regardless of our circumstances, that we would be a people who make five minutes or 55 minutes or 555 minutes that we would consistently sit in the chair, open the scriptures, and ask you to do a sweet work in us. Mm-hmm. Lord, I think back to James Dobson's mother who had a bunch of kids running around little and all the kids knew, don't mess with mama when the apron is over her head <laughs> and her Bible is in her lap. May we be a people that the apron, figuratively speaking, gets put over our head and a Bible in our lap. And Lord, what's beautiful about that is step by step, you transform us. And we look back as old men and old women and we say, oh, but by the grace of God, but by the word of God, but by the spirit of God, we would have lived in quite desperation if not have destroyed our own lives and those who love us most. Lord, we cry out to you this morning. We know this aligns with your scripture for us to meet with you. Draw near. May we draw near this year individually and corporately. We ask that you would work. And everyone said, Amen.